You may recall uh, the book of Revelation actually starts off, it, it gets into apocalyptic literature and prophetic literature, but it starts off as something of an epistle. Uh, the Apostle John is on the island of Patmos. The Lord Jesus Christ and all of his glory and splendor appears to him uh, and gives him a view to the things that are going to ha happen in the end and the things that are happening now uh, in the heavenly realms that we don't get to see. But it begins with messages to the seven churches in Asia. And one of those messages is to the church of Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The Lord who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. One of the things you see here is that Christ affirms the testing of teachers, and in this case, false apostles. And Christ affirms that and, uh, and applauds the efforts of the Ephesian church in making sure that the people who claim to be in charge of the church and have a word from the Lord are actually genuine in their faith, in their practice, and are true messengers of God. Regrettably, the Corinthian church didn't show that kind of discernment. And the Apostle Paul, who spent a year and a half in Corinth planning that church, has been just so disappointed in the effect of false apostles, so-called super apostles that have crept in and that have persuaded the people there to be disloyal to the Apostle Paul. They've attacked his character. They've attacked his ministry. And the, 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 the future of Christianity in Europe is at stake. So the Apostle Paul is continuing to, to press point, his, his uh, point home. If you recall the last Lord's Day, we looked through the passage prior to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to look at 11 and, uh, verses 11 through 21 this morning. But you, you might recall that last week, the Paul, Apostle Paul emphasized a Christian principle, that, which is a paradox, which will never be understood by the world. And that is this, that power is perfected in weakness. You've got to be pretty weak to recognize that you need a, a Savior. Prideful people think they can get their own way into heaven, but a person who has been brought to their knees by the grace of God recognizes they need a Savior. But also, there's a weakness in our life that makes us rely upon God as we go through this life. So this whole idea of strength and weakness is a principle that he's uh, going up. And what he's doing is he's opening up. Here's the Apostle Paul, right? This, without a doubt, the greatest Christian who ever lived. But he has gone on verse after verse after verse talking about his own weaknesses, his own struggles, the many things that he has gone through, the trials and tribulations. And which in the Greek Roman world meant that God was against him as opposed to being for him. He opens up his heart and he's trying to appeal uh, in this very, very personal passage to the, to, the, uh, uh, to the loyalty, the commitment of the Corinthian church. And as you see this, you're going to see even today this just very, very personal, almost heartfelt uh, sense of betrayal from the Apostle Paul. Now, in my, my nature is to be a very open person. I'm just real open. Uh, and, you know, I have this going for me. I have elders and deacons whose staff who have my back. And I have a church that loves me. 
the Apostle Paul didn't have that advantage in many ways. He had people who were stabbing him in the back and people whose love was sometimes questionable. And yet, in faith, he trusts the Lord to be able to proclaim his weakness so that they too would rely on the powers and the merits of Christ for their salvation and for their sanctification as they go through life. So my desire today as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 uh, through 21, as we look at this, uh, the difference between the so-called super apostles and the, the genuine faith of the apostle Paul, that we're going to understand the, at least three characteristics in this passage of what it means to be an authentic apostle. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do turn to you. We thank you so much for the, the history of the church, uh, the, as speckled as it is, and as much as we have failed, God, we can look back to heroes of the faith who are men and women like us, who have a love for you and a hope for the future and a desire to please you in this earth. So I pray, God, as we look at the authentic ministry, the authentic apostle Paul, God, that you would help us to discern what does it mean to be a true minister of the gospel, a genuine Christian in the faith, and help us to be able to discern the difference between those and the many false teachers that have risen and will continue to arise this day. Help us to go to school on the character, the ministry, the nature of the Apostle Paul, and teach us from your holy word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this somewhat lengthy passage, uh, you know, we've broken it down to three different areas here, and you'll find this as an insert in your bulletin that might be of assistance. Uh, the home helps there. Again, we're going to look at three different characteristics of an authentic apostle mentioned in the text. You see authentic ministry in verses 11 through 12 an authentic character in verses 13 through 19, and an authentic concern in verses 20 through 21. Now, what's missing here, which is one that we think is pretty important, is authentic teaching, right? That has been covered, but that's not really Apostle Paul's emphasis in this particular passage because what he's having to do is defend himself against personal attacks, attacks on his character, in this text, not so much against his teaching, but against himself and who he is. And we can go to school on how we are to defend ourselves as well. So first of all, the first characteristic is an authentic ministry in verses 11 through 12. God says, the Apostle Paul writes, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and by miracles. So Paul really kind of starts off here by rebuking the Corinthians. He's trying to get their attention. They have been in sin by allowing these false teachers, by believing some of what these false teachers are, are, are saying. Uh, and he's forced to defend himself, which he considers foolishness. Paul hates the idea of having to boast, of having to talk about his ministry, of having to talk about his credentials. He despises that. Paul understands the Proverbs. Proverbs 27, uh, 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. The problem is, is the Corinthians wouldn't do that. They didn't come to his defense. They let him take it on the chin. They, weren't, they, would, they were cowardly. They wouldn't stand up and oppose these people that were opposed to Paul and therefore also opposed to the gospel. He says here, uh, I should have been commended by you. It is appropriate 
that, that, that people should watch his back. And they weren't. Matter of fact, they were joining in on the chorus uh, that was being raised up against them. This is an inexcusable sin of silence, as one commentator says. And with biting sarcasm, he compares himself with the false teachers. For he says, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles. You can almost hear him saying, eminent apostles, eminent apostles, you know. And he compares himself, he calls himself a nobody here. They're most eminent. He's a nobody. A nobody who was called by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was given a vision that he had just mentioned about going to the, the, the third heaven. And yet they are the most eminent apostles here. It, this is like a bad medieval play. The Corinthians have taken the jester and put him on the throne and ignored the king. And Paul is trying to get them to wake up to this. And it's been going for quite some time. And they have repented some but they still are evidently putting up with the teaching. Some of this, uh, the false apostles still allowing them to stay uh, in the church. They acted cowardly uh, and, they, and they had plenty of evidence. It's not like they were ignorant. You know, sometimes we can claim, okay, we made bad decisions because we didn't have all the information. They had plenty of information here. He, he says here that, uh, that there was the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Uh, and I noticed this. He's using a passive voice. Paul always gives credit to God. He remembers what a sinner he was. He remembers he was a terrorist opposed to the church and that God intervened in his life and filled him with the Holy Spirit and saved him. So notice this, that he says that these, these signs and wonders were, were performed. It's a passive voice. God was performing them through him. The apostles were conduits for divine power, not magicians that were coming up with sort of a sleight of hand to try to wow everybody here. And he's done this consistently over time. He says, with all perseverance. So it's not like he just, he was a one-trick pony. He doesn't say here, remember that time that I, that I healed Stephanie's nephew? You know, it's not, this was that kind of thing all the time. Not exactly, he didn't define what those signs and wonders uh, were, but they were probably gifts of healing, uh, uh, probably some uh, maybe gifts of prophecy and some other things, but they saw it. And it was public enough not to be able to deny it, so he reminds them of this. And this is a contra contrasting with the false apostles who can't do any of those sorts of things. So he's bringing them to mind, you know, that stuff came from God. That meant God was working through me. That means just the fact that I've gone through all these trials and tribulations. You know what that is? That's the life of a real Christian. This is not the health and wealth prosperity gospel of the faults of prophets. What theologians call over-realized eschatology, that you're supposed to be living all that heavenly stuff now. And if you're sick and if you're broke, that means you're somehow in sin and that you need to repent. Well, how many of us have been sick and been broken? We're in perfect obedience, right? Uh, don't raise your hand. So Paul's orthodox teaching and his apostolic credentials here are attested to by signs and wonders and miracles. Signs and wonders are tend to be more of an Old Testament expression. Uh, and then, uh, and then uh, miracles or mighty works is more used in the New Testament here. Uh, and they were authenticated. So basically, the, the signs would authenticate the message. The wonders would evoke a sense of awe. And then mighty deeds would display divine power. So that, again, you, the, God often starts off his program with this kind of thing. He began the church with many signs and wonders uh, and mighty deeds. He, uh, during the time of the Exodus... 
There were many signs and wonders and mighty deeds during the advent of the prophetic office with Elijah and Elisha. There were signs and wonders and many deeds. God will do these kind of things to get people's attention because they've got to switch from paganism into worshiping the one true God. They need some evidence here. So he's, he's taking them back to that and he's actually telling them to remind them. But also the, he's also reminding them that the apostles performed these and that they were God's chosen instruments. The prophets and the apostles were God's chosen instruments. That's why we read the Bible. The Bible was written by prophets or apostles or those closely associated with them. They have a prophetic word about them. They are the word of God written down. Yes, through the personality of those individuals, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we still have, we don't have the signs and the wonders anymore, but we do have the word that was written by those who performed those things. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. How will we escape if we neglect a great salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed by us, those who heard. God also testified with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. But it's important to know this, that the apostles had had a, a one-of-a-kind, non-transferable, non-repeatable ministry. The word apostle means messenger or ambassador. They had the messenger. They were served as ambassadors of, of, of God. And in, in Scripture, there's really only 14 that are named capital A apostles. Those who were, uh, 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 had, had seen Jesus' ministry and been confirmed and, and that sort of thing. And that office is over with. It no longer occurs. If you look at uh, the, the, basically the apostolic commission from Christ himself that was given to the Apostle Paul, it gives you a sense of what it is they're supposed to do. Uh, in Acts chapter 26, Paul recounts what Christ said to him. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things in which I will appear to you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul... Uh, uh, that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the very cornerstone. So that's really the foundation of the church. Again, where do we find that foundation? We find it in, in the Word of God. There are no more apostles. Once the apostle John died and once Scripture was finished, we, we no longer have apostles. Now the, now, the reason why that's important is there's lots of folks out there today, 2,000 years later, that are calling themselves apostles. And that's, the, folks, it's the sure sign of a cult or the sure sign of just great ignorance. Because you can, you can take a title and you can claim God's given you in, uh, all kinds of things to say and to do. And I'm telling you, if you were to, if you were to put out an advertisement in the newspaper and said, we are now going to start the, the church of the sunflowers. And everybody has to bring a sunflower, and we're going to bow down and worship the sunflower goddess. I just, this, this obviously just came to mind. It's a pretty bad illustration. But anyway, I, I'm telling you, you'd have 30 people. People are looking to follow nut jobs. But y'all, we don't have any more apostles. We don't need any more apostles. We got what they wrote. We have that foundation. Listen, when you, I mean, we got a lot of engineers in our church. Um, all you engineers, how many foundations does a building need? 
I mean, as you're building the building and the building of the church has been built here for 2,000 years, do we just keep adding foundations as we build along? No. It's been done. Past tense. The foundations were the apostles and the prophets. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Now, I know y'all are thinking, yeah, we know that. But you know, people who believe what we believe died because this truth was neglected. Because people said that you can't, that uh, the Pope should be included in that too. And that you should know that the king is a head over the church. And they would quote this, they would quote that church, for that uh, verse in Ephesians. Got the foundation, the prophets uh, and the apostles and the great chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ. That's all we need. We don't have a need. Nowhere in scripture do you see that the king of England should be over the church. That the bishop of Rome should be over the church. And that led them to a fiery death sometimes. We sort of dismiss some of these things sometimes that we don't see as sort of central uh, gospel tenets. But this one is one of those. And the Apostle Paul is having to defend himself about these, these usurpers coming in and say, Oh, I'm an apostle too. By the way, I'm better than he is. And by the way, I sure wouldn't follow what he is. That guy's a scoundrel. They're attacking him in his absence, right? So the apostles had a unique, non-transferable uh, uh, position of authority. And you even see this. All right, so these signs and wonders, which were signs of that, you even see that. If you follow along, if you start reading the book of Acts, and you take it to Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, you see a change in the way God was operating through these great men and women of God in the early church. The, apostle, the book of Acts starts off in chapter 5 where it says the apostles were healing many people. When Paul is writing his last letter from, from prison, he says here that he left Trophimus, whom he, had le he left sick in Miletus. Now, if they're healing people in Acts 5, and 30 years later, Paul had to leave Trophimus in Miletus because he was sick, means Paul couldn't heal him. These signs and wonders were going away because conversions had happened and the Holy Spirit was working through the body of Christ and the Bible was almost complete by that time. So we are the ones that are so grateful to, that, that, to be, that we have this foundation of the prophets and the apostles, the cornerstone, of course, being Jesus Christ himself. And, and you know what? Each one of us and us as a church and all those churches that are Bible-believing churches out there are building on that foundation. They're making a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful church building. It's invisible to us. We wonder sometimes about the quality of the materials. <laughs> I wonder sometimes about the quality of the workmen. But anyway, it, it's being built. It's being built. But the foundation was laid. We don't go build another foundation, right? So the apostles, the, sign, the apostles signs, wonders, miracles, they're not normative for the church today. What's normative, as one commentator says, is this, the Bible. And that's one reason why every, you know, our Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the Constitution of this church, there's Bible verses following every one of those things to be able to show you where this truth comes from. The Bible not only dictates what we preach and teach in the teaching stations of this church, but also church policy, church practice. That should be the case for your family as well. Should be the case for our community as well. There was a time when the, uh, the laws of this state, this nation, were based on morality of Holy Scripture. 
So now we hear, see, see here an authentic character in the Apostle Paul in verses 13 through 19. For in what respects were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Again, you can feel the emotion of the Apostle Paul here. Here for the third time, ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you, though any of those, uh, through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did he, we uh, not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? All of this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all, of your, all for your upbuilding, beloved. So again, you see this intensely personal section. You can feel the hurt here as he's having to defend himself with people uh, he loves here. But basically, ministry for the Apostle Paul was an overflow of a godly life. And with a clean conscience, he can make a defense here about the way he's conducted himself against all of these false accusations. And one of the accusations was Paul was trying to rip them off. And he goes back. Remember, we studied this as a, as a full sermon a few weeks ago. But he never he did not accept any remuneration from them. They never paid him anything. He was supported sometimes by tent making, but mostly from uh, gifts from other churches so that he would not be confused with these traveling sophists who would go sophists who would go around getting paid for speeches. He wanted to make sure that he was above reproach. So he didn't accept anything from that. And the false teachers turned that into an accusation against him with two big emphases. Uh, one is that, well, it must not be worth listening to him if it's not worth paying for. You know, we're so eloquent in speech and we go out there with philosophy and we give you all this amazing rhetoric and everything. You pay for it because it's good stuff, right? If his stuff's free, it must not be that good. All right, that's part of it. Because they don't understand the character of Christian charity, right? The other one was this, and this is pretty sinister. Remember the whole point here is Paul is now writing them to continue with taking up the collection for the churches in Judea that were suffering through famine and, and an enormous amount of people that the church was trying to take care of. It was Paul's desire to help get rid of that racism between Jew and Gentile by bringing a huge gift from the Gentiles who've been converted, presenting it to the Jerusalem church and saying, this comes from your brothers, from your sisters who were pagans, uncircumcised Greeks who now are filled with the Holy Spirit. See, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. And that's what he wanted to do. Well, now they're saying, oh, the reason why he didn't get you to pay him is because he plans to steal all that money and get on a boat and go away. That's what they were accusing him of. So he has to kind of uh, defend himself. They've literally trampling on his charity. So, so sarcastically he rebukes them. Forgive me this wrong. Forgive me for not exploiting you like the false teachers were. Uh, but he loves them. He loves them. He's going to go to Corinth for the third time. He wants to go back and follow back up with them. And he keeps referring back to this, this issue. He says, I do not seek what is yours, but you. You are the one I'm interested in, not your stuff. Not your stuff. 
And he gives an illustration. Children are not responsible, save for their parents, but parents for their children. He is their spiritual parent. He has a responsibility to take care of them. And in all of the pains and the weaknesses, and you see these in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, the frequent journeys, dangers by robbers, dangers by countrymen, floggings by the, by the Jews and uh, caning by the, uh, the Gentiles, dangers in the wilderness, dangers of the sea, dangers among false brethren and cold exposure, hunger, all those things, all that stuff he did for them. He did for them. He certainly would have been in this right. And he tells, says that to ask for enumeration. People who, uh, who preach the gospel should make their living by the gospel. He makes that point clear earlier, but he was being especially careful because he knew how insensitive or how sensitive they might be. And he knew that he could be compared to some of these sophists that go from town to town making a living uh, with their speech. But he did this out of, a, out of a love. He says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. He's willing to take it on the chin. And he's willing to do something with the most difficult thing sometimes for Christian. He is willing to be misunderstood. I mean, to Paul's credit, he could have said, to heck with the Corinthians. They took care of me in Ephesus. They took care of me in Berea. I'm going back there. But he didn't give up the fight. Praise God for all you European-looking types. <laughs> It's a good thing the gospel kept going in Europe, right? You know, it's interesting. Uh, basically says here, and you can, again, that his concern is that the love, that this, this sacrificial love he showed was not reciprocated by them. He says, if I love you uh, more, am I to be loved less? And, of course, they suspect his motives. So, again, sarcastically says, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. The interesting thing is, is the things that the false apostles are accusing the apostle Paul of are, here's a revelation, the very things they are doing. Y'all, this comes straight out of the handbook of Satan, and you see it today. Karl Marx said, accuse your enemy of what you are doing as you are doing it to create confusion. Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda ministry under Nazi, uh, Hitler, uh, Hitler Nazism, said this, accuse the other side of that which you are guilty. How many of you who were celebrating the overturn of Roe versus Wade are being accused of not being loving because you're defending the life of unborn children? It's incredible. It's incredible how those things are being turned on top uh, turned on, on its head. And this is what was happening back then. This is nothing new. It's nothing new. But that's one of the frustration, stress, frustrating things about being a Christian in a post-Christian culture like ours is when you act Christian, you're considered to be unloving, hateful, intolerant, ignorant, a jerk, etc. And that's hard to deal with. We want to say, no, no, no. Well, you may just have to take it on the chin like the Apostle Paul did. He said, I most gladly will be expended for you here. And he, then he brings in some extra witnesses. He says, hey, you know, I brought in Titus and I brought this other brother. They treated you with integrity. Remember that? You've always been able to trust them. Why would you question me now? I'm part of their company. They were evidence of, of the kind of character that was on display. Look and see. Look at the lives. So now here's a reason why. Another reason. First of all, we want to glorify God and we want to obey God for us to have clean lives. It, 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 you don't want to be a Christian that lives in constant shame. You, there are, will be times we will have to defend ourselves against accusations, true accusations or false accusations. 
And we want to be able to say, I want you to look at my, I want you to look at my life. I want you to be able to look, look at my bank account. Look at my family. Look at my home. Look at my browser history. Talk to my coworkers. I want you to be able to look at my life and know I am above reproach. Now, not a one of us is perfect. Not a one of us is perfect. And in any one of those areas, we have made mistakes. But there should be a general trend towards being above reproach. Towards not living in any kind of scandal or anything like that. You know, so many, so many of these seats are empty because people in the culture don't trust the church because they've all run into hypocrites, right? Every, I mean, they, they, oh yeah, he's a, oh, he's a saint on Sunday, but he's a, he's a scoundrel on Monday. We've known people like that, right? Well, would that we, that this church, that, that accusation would never stick. And with Apostle Paul, it didn't stick. And yet, they kept trying to re-stick it up there. He had a, what they call, what they said about Reagan, he had a Teflon personality. They'd throw stuff at him and it would just sort of slide off. Apostle Paul was even more so than that, and yet they kept, they would, they'd end up nailing it to, to them if they could get away with it. So he says here, he's, he, again, he's getting kind of defensive. All this time you've been thinking that you were defending ourselves, I'm sorry, that we are defending ourselves uh, to you. Actually, it's the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved here. He's concerned now that the defensive nature of his letter is going to be dismissed so he's just defending himself. So he's reminding them that it's before God that he does all these things. In 1 Corinthians, he told them in chapter 4, it is required of stewards, that's all of us, that one be found trustworthy. But, but to me, it's a very small thing that I may examine, uh, be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. I love that. He doesn't even examine himself. He lives in such a way that he doesn't... So many of us are paralyzed by, by, by consuming thoughts about ourselves. Morbid self-thought, morbid self-pity. Uh, and and we, we just... I can't do this because I've done this in the past and I don't dare do that in the future because I'm this way or whatever it might be. And you, you end up just stirring up all this muck and you end up being, walking through life as kind of a half Christian because you're just beating yourselves up all the time. You'd recognize that you're sinful. You put that in the past and you move up in the future. And Paul is just not, he is not hobbled. He never goes back and mentions, boy, I'll never forget the time I killed Stephen. You're probably right for rejecting me. I was a murderer. I'll never forget the time I dragged that Christian woman by, that, by her hair and her children were screaming and... Uh, feel kind of bad about that now. Maybe, maybe, maybe I just shouldn't be a missionary. Yeah, it's like, that was a sin. God has covered my sin. He's called me to bring this message. I'm moving forward. I'm moving forward. It's a good lesson. I love how he calls them here. He calls them beloved here. <laughs> After just blasting them, he reminds them, I love you. I mean, isn't this what you do as a parent? After you have to discipline your child, you, you hold them, you cuddle them, say, I love you. And my demonstration of love towards you is that I spank the snot out of you. And uh, God says the same thing to us sometimes, doesn't he, right? That's actually, 
Now, abuse obviously is a sin, but good, good Christian discipline is as a blessing. Heaven forbid that your children should grow up without it. They'll end up moving to Washington. You know. So Paul's goal has always been for the beloved. I love uh, what Chesterton said. The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he hates, I'm sorry, but not, but not because of what he hates and what is in front of him, because he hates, uh, because, because he loves, I accidentally wrote it twice. I was so excited about this quote. <laughs> I stuttered in a quote that I wrote down. <laughs> yeah, speaking of patience, uh, churches, why don't we try that again? The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. He is the thing between that evil and the good behind him. So the Apostle Paul is fighting these false teachers, but he's doing it because he loves the Corinthians. If he didn't love the Corinthians, he'd just let them have their way. They, they've earned it, right? They've earned it. But it's all this, this principle of upbuilding is such a principle in, in Christian ministry here. Ephesians 4, uh, verses 11 through 16. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. And what, for what purpose? Why did he call all those teachers, leaders into the Christian church? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. How long is this going to go on? Until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Again, one of the other things the Protestant Reformation exposed was this lie of the clergy laity system. Uh, back in the medieval church, the highest thing you could ever be would be a monk or a nun. You know, because you're in full-time ministry. You know, you're, and, and, you're, and you're miserable. And therefore, your miserableness is holiness, so therefore that's the highest level. It's just so twisted. It's so twisted. And the Reformation came back and said, everyone has a calling. A brick mason is no less a calling than a pastor. But what's a pastor's job? He equips so that you can do the work of ministry. The clergy lady system is still very much alive in the Protestant church. There's this idea that the pastor is sort of like my, my, um, my, 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 my tennis pro. He's going to improve my backhand and my forehand. I come in on Sunday so that he can, he can, he can you know, make me feel good. Or, but he's the one that does all the religious stuff. No, he's the one that teaches you the scripture. And you're the one that's supposed to do all the, not religious stuff, the Christian stuff. You're the one that do the work of ministry. And you want it that way. You don't want this hierarchy of, 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 of prelates going out and pressing all this thing upon you. This is your church, your ministry. You are contributing to the building upon the foundation. All right, now we see here the authentic concern in verses 20 through 21. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not uh, being the, the way I wish uh, and may be found by you and not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossips, arrogance, and disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Well, this, is, this is kind of going back to 1 Corinthians, right? All the, the moral mess that they were. 
And for those of you who may have forgotten, remember that in the Roman world, Corinth was a newer city, a lot of nouveau riche. It was also a port city. It was estimated there were over a thousand temple prostitutes uh, in Corinth. So you, you sleep with a prostitute as a form of worship to the Greek gods. And even in the degraded Roman world, to, to, to Corinthize meant to sleep with a, with a prostitute. So th- this is, uh, I, don't, I don't know, what you, the Las Vegas of the Roman world? I don't know how you'd put it. And, but so so they're, they, they're, they seem to be also falling back into not just following false teachers, but probably because they're getting such bad teaching, their morality is lapsing as well. So he's basically saying, hey, listen, I'm coming to you here. And I don't want to be put to shame. I don't want to be, I don't want to mourn over your behavior. Know this, I am coming for a visit. And I want to see a clean shop here. He does give him some credit. He may be wrong. He says here, perhaps. He qualifies his terms a little bit. But he's evidently gotten some word that there's still some immoralities going on and everything. And what he's doing here is he's emphasizing this, Repentance. There's this whole movement out there, this antinomian movement out in the church that says you don't have to repent to be a Christian. There is no Christianity without repentance. You've got to turn away, yes, from bad teaching, uh, bad worship, but also that should reflect in you a moral lifestyle, not a perfect lifestyle. We're all a mess. We get that. You're never going to be perfect. But in terms of your trajectory, you go towards things that are clean and good and holy and light and away from things that are dirty and vulgar and, and, and are hidden by the darkness. You've got to repent and you've got to keep repenting. Used to be when people were, we would interview people for membership, we'd say, have you repented from your sins? And the, and the answer was, yes, and, and I keep doing so. And then the elders would say, us too, you know. But there's got to have repentance. Don't believe that business out there that you, you, you basically, uh, because of grace, you just, you don't have to do anything. You just, God just has to accept you for the way you are. That's, God does give grace. But if you stay the way you are, you're just not a Christian. You're lying. Or someone's lied to you. It's just too easy to take the label Christian and not prove it. Paul's asking for proof here. Isaiah 55, speaking of repentance, says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So he gives two big categories of sins here. That's one of the questions on your, on your home helps uh, insert there. Two big ca- There's relational sins and then sexual sins. And re- the relational sins, strife, which is, you know, quarrels that arise from in, uh, enmity and dissension. Jealousy. Jealousy is sort of the negative side of zeal. Uh, it's, a, it's a self-centered suspiciousness with energy. You know, you're grasping with energy. You're zealous uh, against somebody else. Angry timbers. There's this a- rage and outburst and abuse. Uh, disputes, of course, is divisiveness, slanders, or open insults and character attacks. Gossip are whispered insults and character attacks. Arrogance, pride, and motion and attitude. And then disturbances. Uh, th- that, that's the result of all those things. The peace is broken in the church. You know, you read, this, you read these, this list and you think, is this what's happening on Sunday morning in Corinth? Makes me really appreciate y'all. I don't know that I've ever seen uh, angry tempers on Sunday morning. Or at least y'all stop it right before you get out of the minivan with the four children and you walk into the door. 
right? Gossip, slanders, disturbance. Then you have sexual sins, which, of course, Corinth, Corinth was, was famous for. Impurity, which is a, a moral uncleanness. Immorality, Im, uh, which is uh, the word porneia. We get our word pornography form. Uh, sometimes it's translated fornication. That's uh, basically uh, sexual acts outside of marriage. Marriage keeps sex safe. Marriage is a Sex is a gift within the confines of marriage, but it's like fire. You keep it in the oven, it'll keep your house warm, it'll bake your bread. You take it out of the oven, put it in the, on the couch in the middle of the living room, it's going to burn your whole house down. Our country has put the fire of sex for the last hundred years on the couch in the middle of the living room, and it's burning the country down. We have to have a higher standard. Sensuality, which is a, describes a public, unrestrained, uh, flagrant sexual sin. So he's kind of making this point at the end is that I'm coming to you and I'm coming to you in love. You've been very disappointing, but I'm still coming to you in love. When I get there, don't let there be a bunch of immorality that I have to deal with. And get rid of these false teachers. And, you know, he's writing to he doesn't start off by saying to the pastor of the church of Corinth. He's writing to the church members. He's this letter's for you. You are the front line of making sure that this church does not endure false apostles. And what happens when you stand up for truth? And you, as a church, stand up for biblical uh, reason, biblical traditions, biblical worship. Well, the praise that went to uh, the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, for standing up against false teachers, closes with this. The Lord Jesus saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Your enduring steadfastness for truth will result of all of us one day being together and eating in the paradise of God. That's what we're living for, not this. May we be found faithful to affirm authentic apostleship in God's holy word. Father, I pray that you would teach us to be faithful, Lord, and help us to know how to apply this both within a church but also within our own homes. Lord, I I am just overwhelmed with the, uh, the advent of the Internet, all of the competing voices that are out there. So many of them are vile. And we need to be aware of them, but also not be affected by them. And that's a tough line to to walk sometimes. So, Lord, help us to be above reproach, to live a life like the Apostle Paul. Knowing that God is the one who examines us. And help us to make sure that whenever our spheres of influence are, that we would be those who recognizes truth from error, light from darkness, and that we take a stand no matter what it costs us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.